Thank you, Natalie. You know, you've just heard uh, one of the most famous things uh, that Jesus ever said. And when we say the word of the Lord, we mean that God himself became one of us and spoke these very words to us. He invites us this morning into uh, a way of living, into a way of relating to other people. He is elaborating on the kingdom and he's laying out what we all know to be the golden rule. And this morning, I I think Jesus is inviting us to, to be the kind of people that will be comfortable in God's world. He's inviting us uh, out of the darkness into the kingdom, and he's telling us how to look at that. And he's going to focus this morning on relationships. So we've studied the kingdom, we've studied the kingdom heart, we've studied the obstacles to being able to enjoy and live the kingdom. And this morning he's going to focus on kingdom relationships. And as he speaks, he's reminding us that how we treat one another is supremely important to him. He is uh, reminding us that he is present in every relationship. He told uh, the disciples when he left that I'll be with you to the very end of the age. So even as we read his teaching now, as we hear his words, uh, he's present. He's present and he's inviting us into a way of relating to others that has him at the center. And we can't really do that until we've dealt with our heart, until we've dealt with uh, the, the things that we lean on for comfort, whether it be our reputation uh, or our uh, comfort in wealth. And he's He's turning now to, with that in mind, to relationships. And now we're going to see the texture of kingdom relationships. And they apply to uh, the relationship with our spouses. They apply to the relationship with our children. They apply to our neighbors, to our classmates, to our co-workers. Uh, and he's present in the middle of that. And the scriptures tell us that in him we live and move and have our being. And so, as you think about this morning, try to imagine Jesus, uh, uh, invisible Jesus, sitting on your right shoulder from now on when you're interacting with people, when you're uh, dealing with conflict, when you're challenged in uh, some aspect of relationships that you have, that he's there. And he wants to take us out of our world, which is the first six verses, into his world, which is the last six verses. And there's a coherent argument that he's taking us through. And he's really describing uh, the things we tend to do, such as engineering the condemnation of others, uh, being prideful, seeing ourselves as superior to others, And he's inviting us to scrap all that and to embark on a way of living with relationships that is uh, 
uh, how he wants us to live. So there's actually five points in the sermon, but they break out into two parts. The first part is the first three, which we see here, uh, the things that get in the way. And then he offers an incredibly powerful, very simple way of living in the last two that ends up in the golden rule, which is really the summary of the whole passage. So uh, let me pray for our time. Father, uh, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for these words. Uh, They're incredibly powerful. Would you show us, uh, Lord, to draw us out of our ways and our plans and our devices into your Son and his kingdom. And I pray, Lord, as we think about sharing communion in the next short while, that you would remind us who you say we are, that you would lead us into the things you want us to do, and you would also point the way to those that we can share this with that would bring you joy. We ask that you would have your way with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at these things one at a time. The first is, he says not to judge. And uh, if we do judge, then that's how we're going to be judged. The means and methods and standards we use, we will be judged. I believe what he's saying is that he is talking to us about condemning others. He's talking to us about relegating others to a position of inferiority or a position of uselessness. I think he's uh, really talking about us making uh, a summary of some other person who can no longer be useful. And so I think uh, here he's not saying don't use your head uh, or your heart to assess the situation. Because he makes it clear in verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6 that there is some assessing to be done and there is some interaction to be done with other people. So I believe what he's really referring to is condemnation and uh, that idea of plain judge over someone else. So he's also saying that when we condemn and judge others, we tend to get that back. And he says that that's what's going to happen to you if that's the way you are. And so he's pointing out the fact that there's a condemnation cycle that we get into. We get into it, for example, in marriage. It begins very slowly as complaining. Um, And then it might... uh, it might increase from that um, to criticizing. And then it might increase from that uh, into uh, contempt. And then it might increase from that to condemnation. But there's a cycle that goes on. And when we give and receive condemnation, we're We're trapped. We're trapped in this vicious cycle. And he says, folks, exit the condemnation cycle. And it's always a reminder to us that there may be always something 
we don't know about a situation before we jump into that. Stephen Covey tells a powerful story of a man uh, on the subway on his way home from work late one evening in New York City. And there are three children running around the subway car yelling and screaming. And the father appears to be completely disconnected, sitting in his seat with his head down. And this guy goes up to the, to the man and says, um, Hey, do you need some help with your kids? He could have said, Will you get control of your kids? But he says, Do you need some help with your kids? And he goes, looks up at the guy and says, Yeah. Their mother just died. And I'm a little out of it. So we never know. We never know what is going on in that person's life. You know, we had an election last week and the discourse going back and forth illustrates the condemnation cycle, I think, quite well. But what, what if the person that you know or the person that you may be wanting to have an argument with, what, what if they spent as much time and energy and prayer as you did in voting for the person they voted for? What if? Then we have a privilege when we start thinking and asking to exit the condemnation cycle. Dallas Willard says it this way, When we enter the life of friendship with the Jesus who is now at work in our universe, we stand in a new reality where condemnation is simply irrelevant. There is before God, Paul says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as for the condemnation we may receive from others, I endeavor not to receive it, to just ignore it or drop it. I have learned to look at it only while simultaneously holding in full view the fact that Jesus, far from condemning me, died for me and is right now intervening on my behalf in the heavens. This helps me stay out of counter-condemnation with its pain and anger. So we give up our right to be right. We give up our seat on the judge's dais and we recognize that it belongs to him. It belongs to him. And we really can't trust ourselves to do it properly. And we need to be uh, willing to step aside from that. James says it in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, uh, like this. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now whether that person uh, is homeless in front of you, or is diagnosed with AIDS, or is... Uh, divorced or is uh, needing a shower, no matter what it is, that person is a fellow human being. 
And their story got them to where they are. But they are every bit, every bit as welcome in the kingdom of God as any of us. Right? So we, we say these things don't define those people. Christ defines them. Christ declares them part and parcel of those he came for. And so, as we exit this condemnation cycle, we're beginning to get a reset on reality. Who we are, who Jesus is, who the person in front of us is. And it puts us in a different place because Jesus is right in the middle of every human relationship. And as we exit the condemnation cycle, we come to the second part that comes to light because when we do, we begin to see things clearly. And when we begin to see things clearly, one of the first things we begin to see is our pride. We begin to see that uh, we have had attitudes that are not helpful to others. And Jesus essentially reminds us that we have a plank in our eye. And the plank in our eye is this thing that blinds us. Now, I'm glad you laughed because I want us to... Cap- like, when, when you hear this, you may not initially laugh, but this is a powerful piece of humor Jesus is using. Irony. These, these people walking around with logs in their eyes. I wonder if he had in mind the religious elite who would wear these big phylacteries on their foreheads with these big things sticking out with the little scroll of the law on it. I wonder if he had that in mind when he chose this picture. But it's the picture of, of uh, us in our pride walking around, nitpicking other people. It's, it's that, that pride that stops us from receiving this, this message, what he's saying. And he's saying, take that thing out of there. Confess your sin. Come into a kingdom relationship. And then he says, then you will be helpful to the person that you're seeking to help. In other words, he's saying, watch your pride. Because if you are going to be helpful, if something is going to be helpful, it's going to be humble. And we we know that instantly. We would much rather be approached by someone who comes humbly and gently than we, we like getting a scolding or getting hammered on. So he says, look, take that out of there and now you can be helpful. Which is why I don't think he was saying you know, assessing and speaking to other people in the first two verses. I, I think he does intend for us to have in the right relationships. He intends us to have relationships of accountability and truth where we speak the truth and love to each other. But it's the condition that we have to see and take that thing out of there before we can be helpful to that person. Paul then takes this teaching and, and, and expounds on it a little bit in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
So first of all, he's saying the people who do correction need to have a Holy Spirit-filled life. They need to have that life in order to be able to do this work properly. And then, and only then, uh, to come and not correct, not rebuke, but restore. To come with the attitude that this creature of God is off the path with Jesus and and is going to get them back on the path with Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is restoration and the methodology is gentleness, which means lowly, non-presumptive, tentative. That's why in all of the best training that you can get on this subject, um, and let me do a shout out to Equipping Ministries International. I don't see Dave or Pam. Oh, there's Pam. Okay, Pam's right there. But they have courses in listening and speaking the truth in love. And we are going to put those on the calendar in the program that you can take advantage of those. But this is the very best teaching you can get on this. And it is always with a tentative spirit that we go to someone else. Because we may be wrong. Because we have planks in our eyes. And because we love to play judge. And so if we know these things then we can always bring it in love. And then it says, but watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. But notice that we have to recognize we may also be tempted to do that very same thing. So when we go to someone else, we ought to be able to say with absolute conviction, I could do that sin. I know I could do that sin. There's a famous evangelical, national evangelical leader who was on a crusade against homosexuals and then it was discovered that he was in homosexual prostitute relationships. And it's that very issue that if we start railing on something, it's going to be part of our life sooner than we think. Now the third, uh, the third piece of the things that we do is, is, and Jesus is addressing something, and this is probably the part of this sermon that I'm uh, least 100% on. But obviously the first reading of it is that Jesus is saying, don't put your sacred stuff uh, before dogs and before swine. And what he means by sacred stuff is that could be the gospel, your relationship with Jesus, your testimony, uh, something you're really wrestling with, uh, that you're confiding in someone else with. Not to trust your best to people who are dangerous, people who are going to either uh, attack you or trample you. And so there may be people in your life you automatically think of that could fit that characteristic. They are such a pagan, they are never going to be able to understand my experience with Jesus. They are so far gone, they are hopeless. Or they're terrorists who, in finding out that I'm a follower of Jesus, are going to kill me. 
There are many brothers and sisters in Egypt who have experienced that very thing. But there's a deeper part of this that I wonder if Jesus is not if Jesus is not raising, and this is the part I'm not so sure about, but if we are evaluating other people as dogs or swine, then we are violating what he said in verses 1 and 2. So is he warning us about dangerous people or is he warning us also that we tend to categorize certain people inferior to us. And that's just what we do. The reason I say this is that the ultimate pearl in the universe was Jesus being given to the human race who ended up trampling on him and killing him. But he still gave the most precious thing he had to the human race. And in another episode, Jesus is with a Gentile woman who wants him to heal her daughter. And he said, look, I I just came to the lost sheep of Israel. I, I didn't come to you Gentiles. And then he's with his disciples. And his disciples say, Master, tell her to go away. And there's this moment where Jesus says, yeah, um, I don't want to feed the food to the dogs. And then she says, well, even the dogs get to eat at the table, uh, the scraps from the table. And Jesus then says to her, right, blessed are you, woman, your faith has saved your daughter. Now in that moment, he actually called her a dog. But I don't think Jesus really thought she was a dog. I think Jesus was testing his disciples. They were telling her to go away. Get him, get him to go away. Jesus was testing. Would they have some compassion or would they agree with, his, with, with this assessment that she's a dog? So I don't know where you come out on this passage. I encourage you to think about it. But what it says to me is that there's a possibility that I might have a superior attitude or I might give up on somebody or I might think somebody is outside the reach of God. And if you're here this morning and no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God has given Jesus for you. He has made available salvation to you. And he is saying, don't, please don't be in the condemnation cycle. Please don't be blind to your pride. And please don't, be careful, yes, but please don't assign someone a position of inferiority that is permanent because with, all, with God all things are possible. Never quit. So those are some of the things that we tend to do to engineer condemnation of others to make ourselves feel better. And Jesus says, look, let me tell you the way of the kingdom. And in verse 7 and through 11, he basically says, let me introduce you to the idea of the power of a humble request. 
And this idea of a humble request, a, a simple request, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus is saying, look, don't manipulate people. Just speak clearly and ask humbly. Now, this works like a charm in the world of pets. Our yellow lab skyline had a way of just coming up and sitting on the couch and putting her head under your hand, looking at you. And you just couldn't resist. Or, like he says in the text, who of us, if a little child comes to us and says, can I please have a drink of water? Who of us is going to be able to resist that? It's a very simple kingdom economy of asking and giving and receiving. It is as simple as... It it just is so simple, that's all I can say about it. This book cover reminds me that this is how we train our children uh, to simply say please and thank you. And how power how that brings us together, how powerful that is. We we train in the in the premarital world, we train couples to be able to ask for what they need. The technical term is assertiveness. But the practical reality is for all kinds of reasons we don't like to ask. One couple we worked with, the husband had a a kind of job that he would always succumb to the last minute fires at work and he would get home at 6.45 or 7 o'clock. And in working with this uh, couple, we use a technique called the XYZ statement. The X is the behavior that the other person is doing. The Y is how it makes me feel. And the Z is what I need, the request. And so it's very non-condemning. It's when you work past 6 o'clock, I am home alone with the children and I feel abandoned and I'm drowning. And what I would like is for you to be home for dinner four nights a week at 6 o'clock to help me. Very simple request. Non-condemning. Uh, it's, she's not telling him anything about him. It's, she's just noting the behavior. She is saying her feeling and she is making the request. And that transformed that couple's marriage. So Dallas Willard says, we should note that the ask, seek, knock teaching first applies to our approach to others, not prayer to God. In other words, the prayer comes later in verse 11. We respect and never forget that the latch of the heart is within We are glad for that fact and would not override it. We can gently but persistently keep our hopeful expectation before them and at the same time before God. Asking is indeed the great law of the spiritual world through which things are accomplished in cooperation with God and yet in harmony with the freedom and the worth of each individual. To understand Jesus' teachings, we must realize that deep in our orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture toward God and a different posture towards other people. 
And so God is simply saying, I'm in the middle of it. With ever, whatever relationship, simply ask. Make your request known. Non-manipulative, gentle, respectful, loving. And this is the picture you should keep in mind when you ask God. He's your father. You're his child. We are, we are, we have access to the, to the king of the universe. And this is his posture. What would you like? What can I do for you? And all of this also makes no a personal, per- perfectly acceptable option. We always have the right to say no when someone asks us something. And so does God. He has the right to say no uh, when he recognizes what we're asking for isn't going to be good for us. In all of this, he wants us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. In other words, we're aware the serpent knows precisely when to act and we're harmless and we're gentle like a dove. So he's simply just saying, come and ask and... uh, How many times does he say, it shall be done for you? It shall be done for you. So this is the new command. This is is how he ends the discourse of this section with the golden rule. So whatever you would have done to you, then do that for others. And this this is the new commandment that he gives later in John 13, uh, as I've loved you, you must love one another. It's the same thing. It's the observant, listening, careful, humble, patient processing of the world around us and uh, walking that out. That is the way of love. That is the kingdom alternative to the way we would tend to do things. And the beautiful thing is, when we get to this point, we are ready to love our neighbors. We are ready to leave and walk out and love our neighbors because now we can process every relationship through a very simple grid. Am I condemning? Am I prideful? Am I putting myself above someone else? And can I move now to simply just ask and humbly request and keep asking and keep requesting until God... uh, makes his purposes known and fulfills that request. So I'm going to invite the uh, worship team up. And and by the way, uh, I just invite you during the time of worship and getting ready for communion to just process your relationships. And I want to give you three things to think about in this communion meditation. And remember, you are a royal child of God. The first is my I am today. Who does Jesus say I am today? In this passage, in this passage, he's inviting us to be the children of the Most High to ask and request. And he's reminding us that we are his and he is a good God. I will. What is Jesus asking me to do today? Is there a relationship that needs attention? Is there a point of view I have to change? Do I have to seek forgiveness or extend forgiveness? And then finally, 
So I am, I will, and the last is I love. Who can I share this with? Who can I share this teaching with? Who can I share the aha that I'm having regarding uh, this text? And it may be in the context of going to someone to repair a relationship. I learned something Sunday. Jesus spoke to me. And I, this is how I've been treating you. And I want to ask your forgiveness. Or it could be someone where the relationship is really good, but there's something you've been asking, you've been, you've been afraid to ask for. And you've put that filter on yourself. Well... Do what the Lord says and, and ask and seek and knock. So, Father, we thank you uh, that you've, you've given us the way we are and you've given us the way you want us to be. And as Dallas Willard said, you don't want to leave us there, but you actually want to give us the power to move out of the first six verses of this passage into the second six. And that power is given... Uh, by your cross, by your Holy Spirit. And when we go to communion this morning, Lord, we take the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus. We trade in our deficiencies, our failures, the relationships that are not working, and we receive from you perfect cleansing, perfect righteousness, so that we can leave here today and live differently afterwards. So, Father, I pray that you would bring repentance, that you would bring reflection, that you would bring the hope that as we have communion this morning, the body and blood of Jesus Christ is enough to remind us of what you've done for us in ages past, to remind us that you're here present with us right now and to remind us that you have the power to bring change and transformation into our lives. So we thank you, Father, for your incredible gift. In Jesus' name, amen. The communion table is open. Uh, Take some time to reflect. Prayer teams, if you want to come up, have your communion and get ready to serve, that would be great.